We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. Miller for three. Oh, he backed it in. He backed it in. And the game is tied. We're going to overtime. Warren lets it fly. Yes. T.J. Warren is not human. Ranger catches, shoots for three to win it. He hits it. To go. Brogdon for three. Let's Got go. it. O'Neal drives on Yao, puts it in. Duarte for three. Boom, baby. Anthony attacks. Hibbert denies him at the rim. Karis LeVert. People don't realize how good he really is. LeVert. Skies high for the jam. Stevenson passes into Sabonis for the basket. Jackson turns, fires, and hits. Oh, wow. Turner bringing that smoke. Flips it to the big fella, fake shoots, and hands! Pacer Nation, what is going on? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. Hope you guys enjoyed our new Saturday show. We're going to be rolling with that going forward. But today, uh, we're going to answer part of the mailbag. But we had so many questions, Fachi, on this mailbag. I think 31 total questions. And some of those were like three-part questions, too. So you're talking probably close to 38, 39 questions that we're going to answer today. But we're going to break that up into three days. So you're going to get back-to-back-to-back podcasts from Setting the Pace this week. So you're welcome. But Fachi... How you doing, brother? Hey, I'm doing great, Alex. I guess I've gotten numb to losses. They are not hurting me as much as they used to because, hey, we're trending pretty well towards the top five pick. And, you know, look, the trade deadline, it creates a, a different type of excitement. So I can live with that. Absolutely. Well, I think we got to talk first about the news that we heard today from Scott Agnes, and I think some other reporters had it as well, but I saw Scott's tweet first. Miles Turner. Sore right foot, I believe, and he will be out for the game against the Clippers. We do not know the severity of this injury. We do not know what's really going on. But, Fachi, this was my biggest fear. I was actually going to bring this up on the podcast today because looking at the numbers for the month, Miles Turner is a negative 71 for the month of January. He has not been good when he's been on the floor. And I was going to ask you if you think they should change the starting lineup up. Now they're going to have to because Turner's not going to be in that game against the Clippers. But, This is a prime player that's going to probably be traded by the deadline, and now he's got a foot injury. This could be cause for concern. Very well could be. Now, look, there's always two different ways to look at it. Maybe this has been a lingering foot injury that has gone on for a while that has caused Turner to to struggle a bit. Maybe this is something that, hey, look, if they are gearing up to trade Turner, let's not have this injury worsen. So there's many different ways to look at this. I think at this point – We talked about it, maybe it was like a month ago. I was saying, like, why don't they just give one of the bigs, like, a night off or just something just to, like, you know, give him a rest, be able to slide in Goga or Isaiah Jackson for a few more minutes here or there. I'm hoping it's more of the precautionary, like, let's just make sure that Turner doesn't worsen this injury to the point where if they were to trade him, he fails a physical and then the whole deal falls through. Yeah, I want to make sure I correct that it was Miles Turner has a sore left foot and we'll get a second opinion. I might have said right. I can't remember. But regardless, has a sore left foot via Scott Agnes and he's going to get a second opinion, which is always interesting. Like, what is the second opinion about? Is he doing this because he's just frustrated with his role? 
kind of trying to force his way out? I don't really know. I'm not trying to sit here and play detective and figure out what's going on with Turner because since last Monday, it just seems like something weird is going on with Miles Turner from the cryptic tweets to him trying to explain what this ain't P means to his camp coming out on Instagram. I mean, it's just been a lot of drama. And I don't know if you noticed in that Phoenix game, they went to him like the first four to five possessions. And it was like, wow, okay, they're going to try to force feed Miles the ball, maybe make him feel like he's more involved. I, I don't know what the actual plan was there, but, you know, it, it worked a little bit, it didn't work a little bit. And uh, I thought DeAndre Ayton had a really nice game against the Pacers. So, honestly, if Turner is dealing with a foot injury, though, we need to really consider shutting him down for the next couple of weeks and hopefully get him healthy before the deadline because the last thing you want is to not be able to make a move or to trade because of an injury, but that would be the Pacers' luck, knowing how they've had just an incredible amount of unlucky uh, injury breaks for them uh, the past couple of years. Of course. I mean, the image in my head right now is if Turner's, you know, injury uh, lasts for a while to the point where they can't make a trade with one of the bigs, it reminds me of, like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street saying, like, Tabonis isn't going nowhere! And everyone's like, ah! <laughs> You know, like, it's like, well, at some point, you know, we, we gotta we gotta end this. So I'm hoping that this is just like precautionary, like I mentioned. Maybe it's a week, maybe it's two weeks, maybe it's just like a game or two. I don't really know. But at this point, when the Pacers are struggling, look, I don't think we need to be rushing anyone out there. You and I have talked about it. You wrote about it. Same thing with Malcolm Brogdon. Like, look, don't rush him back. Give him some time off right now. So Turner, he's obviously struggling. I think at this point, it's like you, you mentioned, look, try to get him more involved to, to get him out of a slump. At this point, maybe it's like, hey, look, the foot's bothering him. Why don't you take a little bit of time off and we'll take it from there. Yeah, and I, and I think it also gives the Pacers a good opportunity here now to see what they look like with per, perhaps O'Shea Brissett starting a little bit and then give Isaiah Jackson a little bit of run off the bench as well. I mean, we'll have to see how they go about doing this, but – it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a good opportunity for some of these guys and be a good opportunity for Sabonis not to have Turner next to him to kind of show what he can do in a different type of role. And, and maybe the Pacers want to see what they have with Sabonis and maybe one of their power forwards and O'Shea, maybe Torrey Craig. I'm not sure who they're going to start, but I think it's worth monitoring. And just a reminder, that game against the Clippers is at 3.30 in the afternoon on Martin Luther King Jr. Day Monday. So, just be aware of that if you're trying to watch the game. No, it will not be on during the evening. But any other thoughts on this? Did you want to talk about the Suns game at all, or did you want to get right to our questions, Watch. Well, one thing that I did want to talk about that you mentioned, Isaiah Jackson. Isaiah Jackson went down to the G League, played with the Mad Ants, and he was phenomenal. 25 points, made five three-pointers. I believe he was five and five from three in the game. I mean, just really um, looked sharp. And he, he had a ton of, you know, just like above-the-rim finishes that, I've mentioned that I, I want to see more of. So I, I think that Isaiah Jackson is someone that, man, we've talked about it. We didn't think that he would have a huge role this year, um, but we want to see a little bit more of him. He goes 8 of 11 in his Mad Ants game. Um, just looked great. So three blocks. I If Turner's out, could we get a handful of minutes for Isaiah Jackson over here? So it'd be yeah. interesting to see. You know, in the, the game against the Suns, at one point, the Pacers were up 76 to 73. And in, in what felt like a blink of an eye, that game was over. The Suns ran away with it. And you mentioned DeAndre Ayton. Ayton looked great. I mean, Ayton looked like he didn't even need to look at the hoop. He would just turn around and just flick it right over there time and time again. Just, just got whatever he wanted. So it didn't work out. I wasn't expecting to win. Suns are a really good basketball team. So... I think the fact that I don't even want to say the fact that the Pacers kept it close for a while was was good enough. But, man, that fourth quarter got ugly. No, it really did. I thought the third quarter was telling. I believe, I believe, yeah, it was um, it was Turner that went out. And I know that Chris Duarte was in there with Torrey Craig. Uh, I believe it was Ju uh, Justin Holiday. Carousel Holiday had a really good game. Yeah, he, 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 he was, was on fire. And then Sabonis. It was like that five-man group really brought the team back. I don't think they were that much of a positive plus. I think it was like a plus seven or plus nine in those minutes in the third quarter. But Devin Booker put up like a 20-point third quarter as well. So you're dealing with that, but you're able to go out there and make some stops. And I just felt like the body language that I was seeing from Miles Turner looked like the body language of a guy who's fed up. And I'm not trying to get into like, hey, I'm just, you know, a hater of Miles or anything like that. I'm just watching on court. And to me, it just felt like there was something off with the way Turner has been playing. And you looked at the bench a couple times, and 
he almost was kind of like casually clapping, but it didn't look like he was like super into it. I, I just, I pointed out a play on Twitter. I don't usually do this very much because I'm not the greatest at breaking down plays, whatever. I understand what's going on, but I'm not going to like be able to explain everything in detail, but there was a play to end the first quarter. I'm sure you guys remember JaVale McGee got a tip slam dunk to end the oh first quarter. Oh my God. Yep. So what that. happened here, Turner's at the top of the key, the ball's in the corner. I believe it was Booker. I can't remember, but the person drives baseline. O'Shea Brissett was the closest defender to come help side, which he did. He was right there to meet that guard at the rim. But instead, Turner leaves JaVale McGee from the top of the key to try to block on the help side. So he leaves McGee wide open and doesn't touch him. And McGee just goes in there, grabs the rebound, miss, and dunks it. And I was just like, if Turner just stays with his man, this game or this this shot doesn't happen. And, I mean, it's not all the time, but that goes into a little bit of him trying to just get block after block after block to try to win defensive player of the year. So right now, this is a guy that is not, you know – I got to be careful with what I'm saying, but you, with the body language to me is saying I'm fed up. I'm playing for me. He talked about me and my camp, all that kind of stuff. I just feel like, and if you want to say it's justified, then that's up to you. But it just seems like a guy who wants to be out of Indiana, no matter what he says. And I'm just reading the tea leaves. I'm reading body language. I don't feel like he wants to be here long-term. And I don't think the Pacers want to have him here long-term either. If he's going to continue to act like this. Well, interesting thing. A friend of the show, Zach Pearson, um, I believe it was Zach, Pointed out, you know, I think it was against the Celtics when it looked like Turner might have kind of shooed away Sabonis' oh, hand. that was Josh know. Padmore. Josh Padmore. Josh Padmore. Sorry, sorry. So, yeah, um, I definitely remember that. And that that definitely seemed like the body language of when you're someone's like, all right, all right, I got it. Or like, you know, like, enough. Like, you can see the frustration building over here. It's obvious. And it also, you know, it reminds me of something you tweeted it out. Nate McMillan's comments on Cam Reddish, knowing that they knew Cam Reddish was not going to be there for probably the rest of the season, everything like that. And I think the Patriots have done a good job keeping things in-house. I don't think that that Miles Turner knows that he's going anywhere or anything like that. But I think that these players are probably having the feeling that they could be on the move. And I think maybe you're starting to see, you know, a little bit of frustration of like, hey, I, I might not be here, you know, long term. So, you know, it is what it is type of situation. But we'll, we'll remain to be seen. I mean, the Pacers, like I said, they, they've done a good job keeping things, you know, not getting out to the media in the past. I think this year more stuff has gotten out to the media than we would have liked. Yeah. But uh, I don't think all of these players are going to be here past the deadline. Yeah, and I think another thing, too, we should, you know, account for is just how losing affects a team, right? Yep. Losing impacts a team a lot. And, and when you're losing a lot of games – it just takes you out of your groove. It's just like, what are we doing? Why don't we change things? And it feels like they haven't changed a whole lot. I mean, they've changed the rotations up a little bit. I know they're doing a little bit more things uh, schematically, a little bit different. But at the same time, you know, the results are still the same. So nothing really seems to be working. I understand the frustration for sure. But I also think, you know, it just goes back to people will will say, well, Carlisle in his interview said uh, that he heard about the tweet and that, you know, Miles has been a professional you know, the whole time during this process, it's like, look, what is Carlisle going to say? Carlisle's not going to say, oh, yeah, he's been complaining a lot. He's been moping. He's been no, they're trying to keep his trade value up. So everything that's asked and that gets said back from the front office, the coaching staff, whatever, it's always going to be positive because they're trying to keep a positive image of this player. So I don't read too much into that. What I do read into is body language on the court stuff that they put out on their own social media because they don't care about the Pacers value, the Pacers leverage in this trade. So um, I'm just monitoring that and uh, we'll see what happens. Like you said, Fachi going forward, but I think this is a great time here to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will jump right into the mailbag questions. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, everybody, let's get into the mailbag questions. We're going to start things off here with number one. Pacers Faithful on Twitter. He's got a three-part question, so we'll answer question number one from this three-parter. Assuming Lance gets a real contract, Fachi, how long do you think he gets the contract for? I'm going to say I think just to the rest of the season. I know some people are saying lock this man up long-term. I think the the state of the Pacers, where they're going, I think it only makes sense to kind of sign him for the rest of the year. And then they can revisit in the offseason where Lance already has a house here in Indiana. I think you would think that the Pacers would be at the top of his list of where he would like to sign. But I don't know if there's a need to, you know, give a multi-year deal unless it's a team option like we saw in the past when they decided to not pick up that final year. Yeah, I think that's what it's going to be. I think it's going to be a contract for the rest of the season with a team option for next year. And then they can decide if they want to keep him on for the next season, which makes a lot of sense. But um, other than that, I don't think it'll be very long-term just because of who knows how the franchise is. Uh, or what direction the franchise is going. But uh, next question, what do you think is a realistic return for each center if we could package them with Karis LeVert? That's where things honestly get really hard because you're talking about if you package Sabonis and LeVert, you're talking about trying to make up about $36 million. Then you got the Pacers saying we want two first-round picks for LeVert, which I don't think anybody in the league believes. But then you also know that they covet Sabonis more. So you know, look, you're not getting three first round picks for these guys. Uh, I'd be surprised realistically if you got two, unless, you know, one is like very far down the line. So my hopes would be that you are looking at potentially, you know, an all-star level point guard or something of the hopes. I mean, if you are dealing with Sacramento, maybe there's, there's a deal over there that could be like a De'Aaron Fox and and maybe there's like a a Bagley or, or or Fox and maybe there's, uh, Harrison Barnes, and maybe there's a pick involved in there, like a first-round pick. I don't really know. It seems like too big of a trade because what I'll say is the teams that are interested in Levert, I don't think have an interest in bigs. Like, for instance, Cleveland. You know, they're, they're set yeah. at the center position. And then you got teams like Charlotte who, you know, I feel like they're good at, at, at the guard positions, but then they also have a need at center. So it gets very complicated. Yeah, no, it really does. And I think I think it's easier to trade Levert and Turner than it is Levert and Sabonis. And Agreed. I honestly just don't think Levert and Sabonis are a great duo together. I mean, they had their nice little moment last year at the end of 2021, but or yeah, the 2020-2021 season. But I don't think the 21-22 season has been very well for them together. And we know that Levert is a probably best suited as a six man, but on this Pacers team, he's got to be a starter when when everyone's healthy because he's one of their better players. But I, I do think that it's easier to trade Levert and Turner. Obviously, we've looked at some deals. I think that the Hornets probably make the most sense. Something around the package of Gordon Hayward, P.J. Washington, and you're probably going to want something else, too. It might be James Booknight. It might be a future pick. It might be something along those lines. That makes the most sense. I know a lot of people keep talking about De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis, and I know we have some questions about that later, so I don't want to spoil it too much. But um, I, I think that's just a really hard fit for me. Um, and, and in terms of Levert and Sacramento, but in terms of Sabonis, I'll talk about that later when we get questions about that. But it's it's just really hard unless a player like 
a Brandon Ingram or a Pascal Siakam or someone like that became available, that's the only time I would even consider it. But, you know, you're looking at a player that you hope can change things. Like, I'm not doing it for Tobias Harris. No offense, it's Tobias Harris. Like, good player, but I'm not doing it for him. You know, if you get Jalen Brown out of it, then maybe we could talk, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the package you're thinking of there, but it's it's still just not a realistic return because – uh, it's it's just it's so hard to figure out what each team would value in that regard. But let's move on to the next part of this question to wrap this one up. And it says, how likely is it that KP will be able to resist Chet Holmgren if put in a position to draft him? Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. No promise on if KP can resist some Chet, but I think it's going to come down to the perks of picking fourth or fifth potentially because it's going to be hard for the Pacers to climb into that top three where Chet Holmgren is expected to be taken. So I would just say uh, he might not be on the table. <laughs> yeah, I, I just – I don't have anything against Chet Holmgren. I think he's an actually – he's probably a top five lottery pick in this year's draft based on overall talent with his shooting ability and his ability to block shots. But I just don't think he makes a whole lot of sense for the Pacers. So um, let's move on, Fachi. We got, you got question number two? Yep. So question number two, it's coming from uh, Husky Sir on Reddit. Thoughts on Dwayne Washington Jr. Based on the tiny sample size that we've seen, do you think he has a shot at an NBA rotation? His numbers don't jump off the page, but I feel like it looks a lot better than numbers watching him. Looks a lot better than numbers when you're watching him. He's fly. He flies around on defense and cuts and maintains good space on offense. He has also made some really crafty passes for an off-ball guy that really doesn't run point. Um, I also think it's underrated that he is three years younger than Duarte. Seems like someone we could develop and let compete for bench uh, shooting guard minutes. I think he's a better shooter than what he has shown so far. So long, long-winded question over here. Yeah. Essentially, what do you think of Dwayne Washington Jr.? Can he be uh, an NBA rotation guy? Well, if he is going to be an NBA rotation guy, he's going to be a better defender because I feel like when he played defensively, he really struggled. And 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 there's some things that he can work on and get better. I think he brought up a great point here, Husky Sir, um, about his age, right? He's three years younger than Duarte, so he's 21 years old. He's still going to have a chance to grow as an NBA prospect, but he's on a two-way for a deal, uh, a two-way deal for a reason. I personally think he'll stay on that two-way deal for next season. They like that he can shoot the three ball, but he's been pretty inconsistent with that shot, Fachi. It's not been great. Very streaky shooter. I mean, that that is something that you need in this league is three-point shooting. So if he can get more consistent at that and get a little bit better on defense, then absolutely he's a 15. He's a, he's a guy that can make a 15-man roster. But with that being said, I think that right now he's best served in this two-way rule because while he does bring some nice things to the table – I still think that he's got a lot of work to do before I'm really relying on him to to be in an everyday rotation. Yeah, I would say if you strictly go just looking at the box score, it does not look great at all for Dwayne by any means. But I think being an undrafted player on a two-way contract, I think he's shown plenty of positives. Um, He is a streaky shooter. I, I do. I mean, I think we've known for a while, like, hey, this guy can shoot threes yet. He's shooting sub 30% on the season. Um, but when you look at an undrafted or a two-way player the Pacers have had in the past, you look like, you know, Cassius Stanley, who could barely get any minutes at all. Brian Bowen, uh, Mita Brima. I mean, these, these are guys that I, I just feel like never really got to show as much as Dwayne flashed. Yeah. So I think that Dwayne Washington Jr. can have a spot in the NBA, but just like you mentioned, I don't see him coming off that two-way deal. I think that he can get better, but for someone that was undrafted, I mean, all of a sudden he became a starter for the Pacers for like a week. So it's already more uh, playing time than probably even he expected. It was a couple of nights. He was getting about 35 minutes per game. So I think a bit of a reduced role and an increase in his efficiency could go a long way for him. Absolutely. Let's move on to our next question. This comes from Ice on My Pinky from Reddit. I love the names on Reddit. They're great. Um, but Ice on My Pinky said, when will we realize that trying to build a winning team without a high-level superstar will keep us in NBA purgatory forever? I don't know if we're ever going to realize that because, unfortunately, we can't lure stars to Indiana. We can't get them in free agency. They're rarely available via trade, or we don't pony up the assets needed to make that move for a star. And then we're also not picking high enough to get a star until potentially this year. So nailing this draft pick and then also cashing in on the likes of potentially Miles Turner, Karis LeVert, maybe even both, who knows, may be our best chance at retooling without cleaning house 
and also being able to pick one of those upper echelon draft picks, those guys in the top five that you just can't stumble upon in free agency. Yeah, I mean, no offense, but the Pacers don't have the same leverage that the Brooklyn Nets have to get Durant, Irving, and James Harden here. I mean, you know, those are three really good players, but I do think that they could look at a formula close to what Memphis did or what Milwaukee did, and these are two smaller market teams once again, but they hit in the draft. I'm not saying that you're going to get Giannis Antetokounmpo or John Morant in the upcoming draft. I understand that that's like asking a lot because these are, you know, generational players, right? But if the Pacers are happy or lucky enough to, to to get into the top three of this year's draft, hopefully they can find someone that could be that next star, right? I, I think that's the best way to go about it. You know, it's it's a it's a star-driven league. And I think that the front office is pretty aware of that. That's why they try to go out and get like five really good B-level players because they know they can't get an A-level player for what they have. So I think that was kind of the thinking in that. But look where it got you. It got you. Pretty much, like you said, in that NBA purgatory because you need a leader and you need a star on this team. So you need to hit on that draft pick so desperately this year that it's just an untouchable piece for the most part in any trade conversation because if you can get your hands on one of those top three picks, your your team could change for the better and put you on a trajectory to get you into the top you know, four or five of the Eastern Conference. So I think that's kind of the way you have to go about it um, and and hopefully hitting on some people via trade, hitting on some young players that haven't panned out in their in their current location, but going to Indiana, they could bust out, become most improved player of the year. I mean, we've seen that time and time again with this Indiana Pacers team, finding those diamond in the roughs and turning them into most improved players. I think we have like three or four guys that have won that award already. Five, five, five okay. guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's no mistake. The Pacers have done a good job of that. So. That's something to keep an eye on there, Foch. But I don't really think, um, you know, I think that they do realize that it's just the matter the matter of how they go about trying to rebuild. Absolutely. So moving on to our next question. This is from uh, Slurms McKenzie on Reddit. Uh, <laughs> at what point would it be acceptable to criticize Rick? Look, I, I mean, maybe Rick should be getting more criti- uh, criticism because I, I think it's it's appropriate to an extent. I believe the Pacers only have like eight losses out of 28 that are by double digits. So it shows like they're not really getting blown out in a lot of games. I mean, lately that's happened more than earlier in the season, but having, you know, being like one and 11 in games decided by four points or less is, is not acceptable. I think the Pacers don't get ready to play each and every game. I mean, sometimes they just come out flat or they come out aggressive. And then after the second half, they're not looking that great. Then they look gassed towards the fourth quarter. So I believe, I mean, we don't even, I don't even think we even have a win when going into the fourth when we're trailing. And I, I know we might have only maybe one or two wins even trailing at halftime. So it, it's been interesting, but I don't think that we have the players that Carlisle needs to do with what he wants to do. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I, you know, what's funny is I got a, I got a, I got a message on Twitter from our good friend Ed Lawley, and I know that you know Ed, yeah. been a faithful listener. He said, "We've been looking at this all wrong. Carlisle is tanking. That's why his substitutions don't make sense in the fourth quarter." And I said, "That's really what you think?" He said, "Yep, that's the only way. Play hard for a half, then boom." <laughs> so I was like, "Hey, you know what? I, I'm open to anything at this point. Look, so am I." To me, Rick Carlisle is too good of a coach for this team to continue to play like this. I know that there are some flaws to the roster construction, and I think that is a big part of it. But I also think he's not trying to purposely lose games. Obviously, uh, I don't think he's trying to tinker with lineups that much in the fourth quarter to throw games. But what I will say is he's allowing guys to play through more mistakes probably than if they had a better record. I don't know. But nothing would surprise me at this point. If this team is truly trying to just lose games to get a better draft pick while not like blatantly losing games, right? So I don't think the reason we haven't seen Miles Turner out there in the fourth quarter is because they're trying to throw games. I mean, obviously, with them being a minus 71 for the month, you know, that that just says right there he's not been playing well. He's 0 of 13 uh, from three over the last couple of games. I don't know when the last time he hit one, but he's missed 13 straight three-pointers in a row. He's just not playing well right now. So that's why he's not been playing in the fourth quarter as much. I get that he's a defensive, uh, you know, asset out there with his ability to block shots. But at the same time, you know, Sabonis as a solo center has played better the last, this, this at least the month of January. At least that's as far as I can go back to when I've really looked at the numbers. So 
for me, Rick is to blame a little bit, but at the same time, um, it's just there's a lot of question marks about this team and the rotations, and um, you know they just don't fit. And I don't think they don't. no matter what Rick does, it's not going to matter, Fudge. No, exactly. It's like, look, overall, there's a lot of people that deserve blame. I'd say you can say that everybody deserves blame to an extent, but you look at this team and you just went, man, is this what we were really waiting to see all come together? Because it's like, ah, that might never even happen in regards to TJ Warren. We've seen enough at this point to know it, it, it they just don't fit together. It, it yeah. simply yeah. put, doesn't fit. So yeah. next yeah, well, question. Yeah, let's move on. Chuther Smicken here on Reddit. He said, is there a legit... A legitimate reason for not giving Gogo Batadze or Isaiah Jackson significant rotation minutes at this point in the season. Personally, I'm baffled that they haven't. They've done a fantastic job at accidental tanking, but can they at least develop the draft picks? Look, the Gogo situation is a bit puzzling. Obviously, the Pacers probably know far more than what we know, and I'm sure they see everything in practice, but Gogo's never really been given a fair shake at all. I mean, we've seen him go down to the G League and dominate, but when you have Sabonis and Turner playing the minutes that they are playing, and then you're also then trying to stagger their minutes, I mean, it leaves Gogo with just cleanup duty and blowouts, a couple minutes here or there. Isaiah Jackson, we mentioned, we didn't think we'd see too much of Isaiah this year, but he was playing more earlier in the year before his initial knee injury. It seemed like he was at least getting in what felt like a couple minutes here or there on like a nightly basis. Um, I feel like ever since that happened, though, he was strictly, you know, doing like end of the game cleanup duty and a blowout. But I mentioned we saw him go down to the G League just now, finish above the rim on any any lobs, just seemed like he could really get up there high. He could block shots, 25 points. He's, he's five of five from three. All right. So I need to see this guy a little bit more. So I hope a trade happens that opens up minutes to a properly evaluate Goga for this year, and then also carve out some minutes for Isaiah this year as well. I think the best thing that happened for those two guys is this injury news to Miles Turner, and it's nothing against Miles, but it will give them an opportunity now to hopefully get into the rotation. Look, Goga's going to have to play some center minutes to back up, uh, to back up Sabonis, and we're going to have to see Isaiah Jackson get a little bit of run unless they decide to just play O'Shea and Torrey at that four spot. But I think it would be worth seeing what Isaiah Jackson looks like next to Sabonis for five to 10 minutes a game, right? I don't think that would hurt anything because ultimately you're trying to see if these two can work together. I mean, you don't draft a 19 year old with the 23rd overall pick to not play him whatsoever. And Gogo Batadze, obviously they did a terrible thing by drafting him with already having two centers on the roster, let alone in the starting lineup. Like sure. There was no opportunity there for Gogo to get minutes, but now, I get it. O'Shea Bruce has been playing really well, so he should probably get some of those minutes over Isaiah Jackson. But Isaiah Jackson, you've invested more in him. You're paying him more money. You think he's the future of this team. What he's doing in the G League is special, but we've seen that from Goga, too. It's the G League, right? So it's there's a big you know, talent disparity there from the NBA to the G League. So I think personally for me, while I'm not trying to be rude, I, I don't think that they're like great NBA players right now. But I, I definitely agree with Chuther Smicken's comments here because I agree. If you're going to lose games and you're going to accidentally tank, right, what are you doing not developing your players? Like, why are exactly. we wasting time playing Torrey Craig, playing Jeremy Lee, and playing all these guys over our young rookies when they deserve more of the opportunities? So, you know, unless they're trying to raise trade value for some of those other guys, then I just don't understand what they're doing, Fudge. Like, exactly, because here's the thing, like, some a friend asked me like man how are you still watching those games and i'm like i try and find something that keeps me going like developing the young talent or working towards a better draft pick but while i'm happy that we're like playing dwayne washington and keeper sykes and helping develop them what about the guy that we essentially traded four picks for and isaiah jackson like Literally, I mean, it's like I want to see Isaiah Jackson on the court because I really do feel like he has a lot of potential. Goga, at this point, it's like we're we're like hoping that there's still potential there because it's been a few years. It's like how could this man – we can't flat out say that he's like a bust by any means when he has not been given, you know, a, a stretch of an opportunity. I'm not talking about one game where all of a sudden he gets 20 minutes. It's like, no, can we get this guy like a week's worth or a couple weeks worth of consistent playing time? And, and then I want to be able to evaluate from there because at that point, I don't want to be the team that what if we attached Goga to someone else 
just to trade him. And then all of a sudden he does flourish elsewhere. So that yeah. would be a big shame. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you have to give him the opportunity yep. to, to showcase what he can do, but if he doesn't provide much of anything at that point, then you can make that hard decision to move on from him, swallow that pill and say, Hey, we screwed up again in the draft. But at the same time, if you're not giving him an opportunity, then you're just, you know, you really, you're just kicking yourself because it's a, it's a wasted pick at that point, but let's move on. Question number six, Fotch. All right. So this is from Reddit. I believe the name is like III69420. III. Yeah. Like that. Um, would the Pacers be better with five Lance Stevensons or five Michael Jordans? I'm going to let you answer this one, Alex. Depends on what version of Michael Jordan we're talking exactly. about. Are we talking about the owner, Michael Jordan? Or are we talking about the NBA player, Michael Jordan? If we're talking about the NBA owner, I, I still got to go with Michael Jordan. But, you know, Lance Stevenson, I think that he's a better guitar player than Michael Jordan. And I will say this, Michael Jordan went all out to get Lance Stevenson on the Hornets back in the day. That's true. So we would have to defer to Michael because at this point, he believed in Lance that much. So um, I'm just kidding. But we'll uh, um, – yeah, this is a, this is definitely not a fan favorite reply. I'm going to go Michael Jordan here, Fodge. Are you going to change it up on me? Yeah, like, just like you said, I need to know. We're talking current day Jordan. We're talking Wizards Jordan or Bulls Jordan. However, I think I still got to lean five lances, strumming the air guitars all at once. <laughs> no, look, I mean, you know, hey, the, the goat is the goat, and, and that is that. No, it definitely is. Great question. Way to break up the uh, the seriousness and bring some fun to the, the, the pod. But let's move on. Question number seven. This comes from Captain One in Ron. How much longer until KP in the front office are on the hot seat? Or is this, or is most uh, the current issue squarely on ownership for liking his current team? Well, he loves his little team, so he doesn't just like it; he loves it. Loves it, but I mean, hey, here's the thing. I know this might sound crazy to to some fans, but uh, if Pritchard pulls off a good return for Turner and or Levert, and the Pacers head towards a top five pick, and they hit on that pick, I mean, that could be like you know Pritchard being Pritchard in the front office being safe for another year. Um, one more year, Pritchard wouldn't surprise me because we've we've man, I don't know if it was Scott Agnes or not. We were talking about how Herb Simon's been loyal in the past. I mean, we saw Donnie Walsh with the Pacers for decades. I mean, we saw loyalty to, to Larry, you know, almost like whenever in any type of role out there. So it's not like this is a you know a truly a cutthroat organization. I know they moved on from some coaches, but in terms of the front office, it, it seems to be a bit more loyalty. Yeah, and you know what? I'll be honest with you. Everybody hates on KP for his drafting, and I understand why. It's not been great. But did Larry Bird really draft that well either? I understand no. that throughout his tenure, yeah, he was part of the Danny Granger uh, draft pick. He got Paul George, and he also got Miles Turner right. But, uh, of course, Lance Stevenson as well. But, you know, there's also been a lot of misses that he had. Miles Plumley. Miles Plumley, Tyler Hansborough, Solomon yep. Hill, you know. If you go back and look, like the Pacers as a, as a franchise have missed a lot more than they have hit. Jonathan Bender is a big one, too, that, you know, a guy that, oh, man, he could be something special. And then, once again, never became anything because of injuries. So I just – I feel like, you know, Aaron Holiday was a good player but not great. But you're drafting later in the draft, so I get it. Um, same with Gogo Batadze. Like, he's considered a bad player by most because he really doesn't get to see the floor. And T.J. Leaf was probably the worst pick in the Pacers drafting history. So that is what holds it against KP. But I thought that they did a good job this year getting Chris Duarte. He's been probably the best draft pick of the Kevin Pritchard era. And then you got Isaiah Jackson as well, someone that's 19 years old and you're hoping has a promising career ahead of him. So I think that we got to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt with the draft moving forward to see what he can do and hope that having Carlisle in there does help with the talent of valuation. But you know, I definitely think it's a little bit of both here, Futch, because KP, in my opinion, has waited too long to make deals. I feel like the front office has been a little bit too comfortable with the guys they've had on this roster, and they like to make moves when their back's against the wall. I don't feel like they're as proactive as they should be, and that probably also comes into alignment with the ownership and how much they like to control, in a sense, what's going on. I do think that the last point you made there is very accurate. So I, I don't think this is just KP having full reign. It seems that ownership is, is a bit more reserved. So, um, I, you know, I definitely think that that could be, you know, a reason that that limits the Pacers or why we haven't seen them make a move already. But I do believe Pritchard is probably always calling 
you know, having conversations, but you know, they haven't pulled trigger on anyone yet this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question coming from Matthew Peck on Twitter. Knowing that the, the modus operandi for Herb Simon is lack of movement and patience to a fault, how limited do you believe KP is going forward attempting to rebuild the team? Will he have a free hand to a point, or will he have to get approval for all things? Wow, that goes into uh, your previous answer. Yeah, so I didn't even read the next question. I apologize for that. Sorry, Matthew. But, yeah, pretty much. I just – I feel like Kevin Pritchard said it. He doesn't want to be on the treadmill of mediocrity because he knew where I think, I think he knew where this was heading to a degree. Like he knew that they had enough good players to be decent, but never be good enough. And I think that goes back to one of the questions we had earlier. Like, are they ever going to realize you can't win without a star? Right. I think they came from ice on my pinky. Right. So these are, these are some really interesting things that have to be addressed. And I get it. You want to blame Kevin Pritchard. It's his fault. He's the general manager. He's the president. Right. It's his fault for this team not being better. But at the same time, yes, Herb Simon will not sign up on a rebuild. I think that Kevin Pritchard would absolutely love to rebuild this team, and I think all the fan base would too, but Herb Simon loves this little team, and we're stuck in this situation trying to rebuild on the fly. Herb Simon's already said that that's what he wants to do. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. Kevin Pritchard has to be better. I will not let him off the hook for saying that Kevin Pritchard really great person has been super kind to come on our podcast twice. And I'm not just kissing his butt because he's done that. I I definitely think he has to be better, but I also think that there is a truth to the fact that Herb Simon has a little bit too much of a say in what they do. And unfortunately that could be what there could be hiccups because of that and him not allowing them to just go full half full reign over things. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Pritchard is a bit limited. I mean, similar to what we talked about, it feels like he's allowed to make a move, maybe perhaps two, but I don't think he's able to have a fire sale like Orlando Magic did, you know, yeah. last year when they completely rebuilt, shipped out Vucevic, shipped out Aaron Gordon. Uh, at that point, I was stunned they didn't ship out uh, uh, your boy Terrence Ross. So, hey. you know, yeah, I, okay, people don't forget. Anyway, uh, look, <laughs> I feel like whatever moves Pritchard is able to make, I feel like it's towards – like you mentioned, keeping the Pacers competitive right away rather than perhaps ever doing that bold, like we're going to ship Domas out for a bunch of first-round picks or future picks. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, if you look real quick at what Chicago um, sent out to Orlando, I think Orlando really benefited. They had the fifth pick, right, and the eighth pick. So they got Jalen Suggs and Franz Wagner from Michigan. Who's played very well this year. Both of them have been really, really good. So, I mean – if the Pacers could happen to fall into that same territory of getting two picks in the top eight, I think they could really kick this rebuild into drive. And if you're able to keep a few players that can help you win, I mean, you're, you're probably talking about a, about a quicker turnaround than the Orlando Magic. But, of course, your young players are going to have to grow through mistakes. But um, let's move on to our next question. This comes from Aaron M. at Hugh Pacers. He said, do you think Duarte is struggling because he's afraid to shoot too much? He came out of the gate firing and played with much more confidence. I wonder if a vet said something about it and he took it to heart and is consciously trying not to shoot as much. I don't think a vet said something that like ruined his confidence because I feel like we we heard all in the beginning of the season that Duarte is very coachable and it seemed like people were trying to coach him up. But I did break down some numbers. Now Duarte's shots and minutes are actually solidly down from the beginning of the season when we saw him torching defenses. And that was before Levert came back. But in the month of October, he was averaging 36 minutes per game to go along with 16 shots per game. He was averaging just over 17 points per game. Upon Levert's return in the following month, November, um, those minutes dropped from 36 to 26. Uh, his shots went from 16 to 10 and a half. So you're talking about five and a half less shots. His three-point percentage, unfortunately, dropped each of the following months. So I do feel like it's been a little bit of a inconsistent type of role of going from a starter with more shots, being like that fourth or fifth option at, at times, um, to then being, you know, going to the bench, being more of a focal point for defenses. I think defense has also caught on to him a bit. I think the Pacers' confidence in him early was very evident. I mean, they were going to him in the clutch. I mean, we're talking about against Miami. Uh, against the Lakers for that potential four-point game-winning play. But I feel like since that game, I haven't really seen Duarte as involved in the closing seconds on like a game-tying or a game-winning shot. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Karis LeVert was out during that time. I think so. Then once Karis came back, we knew it was going to be him or Justin that went to the bench. And 
for a little bit, Justin went there and then Duarte started and then they switched it back and felt like Duarte could benefit off the bench. And I think Scott Agnes came on our podcast and said that Duarte prefers to start over coming off the bench. I bet. So, so, I mean, it's probably just like a rhythm thing for him, like having to sit there on the bench and then try to warm up and get hot. You know, I mean, it's a big difference from when you go straight from warm ups to playing right away to warm ups to sit down to come and bring energy. Like that's the good thing about Lance coming, him, bringing him off the bench is, He's just ready to go no matter what. Now, if he's if he's not playing great, then you know that's part of it. But Lance, you won't have to worry about him getting excited when he gets up there on the court. But with Duarte, I think a lot of it just comes with it's a long season. He had COVID. He's also um, his wife or his girlfriend, excuse me, Sylvia. She just, they just had their baby together, Sophia and, or Sophie, excuse me. And so with all that, you know, he's had a lot going on in this young rookie year. And of course, teams have gotten to know him a little bit better with seeing what he does on court, right? Because all these rookies, when they first play, like they can make impacts in the first couple of weeks. But then as the season prolongs, how do teams go about trying to, you know, change things schematically to stop them from doing what they're doing? So I think that plays a big factor into it overall. But it's a lot longer of a year. <laughs> the NBA schedule is you're playing every other night almost, if not most nights. Uh, you're playing most weeks you're playing three games at least five. So I'm sure just the wear and tear of the NBA season, he's going to have to get stronger. He's going to have to just – get that NBA body ready for next season where he can be able to handle more of this type of an impact. But I think that's a lot of it. I don't really think it's too much of players trying to tell him to quit shooting the basketball. Neither do I. I think he's just a product of unfortunately getting off to a ridiculously hot start that we got a little bit spoiled and we expected (laughs) him to keep that up. You know, at one point he was number one in the rookie rankings. I mean, we would have never expected that. So, you know, he'll be just he'll be just fine. I think there's just a little bit of clutter right now and inconsistent roles and being in and out of the lineup. So he'll get settled in. Um, Next question. Yeah. Uh, Did you have something else to add? No, no, no. Go ahead. Next question. Jake X line on Twitter said once Herb passes away or sells the team, how likely of a chance do you think there is that the organization relocates? Zero, Fachi. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Kevin Bowen came on. He's going to be coming on our show Thursday, so we're excited to have Kevin Bowen back on our show. But he did say on the radio that he has heard from sources, you know, basically that Steve Simon has no intentions of selling the team. So that is Herb Simon's son. That's the man that's supposed to be taken over once Herb passes away. But, you know, that is what is being reported out right now. I don't know how long the contract is signed through, but I know it's signed through for a while. So I would be surprised if they sell, but, you know, it's a good thing to monitor, but I don't think this team's going anywhere. I think fans, though, have to do a better job of showing up to games despite the on-court product because if you want this team to, you know, exist, <laughs> you know, just as a fan base, you got to show up and support the team. Absolutely. Look, we've heard rumblings in the past about a potential relocation. I mean, you know, years and years ago, uh, you know, I know Slick did a great job of help keeping the team over here. And then I want to say, like, it could have been, like, maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago. They said, like, Something about the sort that the team could relocate one day, but like that's not going to happen. Look, the, the history of basketball in Indiana is so strong that you would think that whatever owner owners that are coming together to ever buy the team, if they were for sale, you know, that would be at the top of the list of, hey, look, you know, you you have to keep the team here rather than kind of the sleaziness that went on with the Sonics where they were relocated to Oklahoma City. Yeah, we don't want to see, you know, Bob Ursay traveling quietly out of Baltimore to Indianapolis with the Ravens, right? Nope. We don't want to see that with Indiana. I know a lot of people want to see Jim Ursay by the Pacers, but um, I don't think that's going to happen. But, man, that would, sure would be exciting to see him by the Pacers yes, and just, just see what different wrinkle he could bring in there. But, Fachi, our last question for today comes from good friend of the show, Jake Elrod. That's right, Jake Elrod said, why has the backcourt duo of Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert been such a failure? I would just say Levert and Brogdon, it's a backcourt of two guys that aren't true playmakers or point guards, but are trying to be at times. I feel like Levert, iffy defender, Brogdon, I feel like used to be a better defender. I feel like he struggles with quicker guards. I think his, I don't want to say he's breaking down, but I wouldn't say he's getting healthier. Um, I stand by basically saying Brogdon's better off the ball and Levert has tunnel vision when he has the ball. So you got two guys that I just don't think fit together as we hoped. Um, And look, to be honest, Levert just doesn't have a history of ever being a good shooter. So I I think that that kind of hurts. And I think that Brogdon at times, you know, I think his numbers, his efficiency has gone down with having the ball in his hands as much as he has it. 
Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, everything you said, I agree with, and I echo those statements because it's just been it's been rough for Karis LeVert, and a lot of it's just not being a great three-point shooter, not being a good defender. Brogdon, the guy can't stay healthy, so, you know, every time he gets out there healthy, you know, it's like they can't stay together on the floor. I think they played just 29 games together since LeVert was traded here last January, so, you know, it's just it's one of those things. I mean, I get it. Brogdon's gone through some injuries and, and, and whatnot, but – He's better off ball. That's just the way it is. And he doesn't like that. He wants to be a point guard. So I think I think a lot of it has to do with Brogdon not accepting the fact that he's better off ball. Uh, but I also think you bring up great points. They're not great point guards. They're not true point guards or true playmakers. They're more guys that are good enough to, to run your offense, but not good enough to get you deep into the playoffs. So that's where I think this team has to improve is get a point guard, get some better wing depth. But you know, Lavert's a good player, but I think he's like we talked about more of a six man on a really good team instead of being a starter that you're relying on. Because when he's out there, the ball just sticks. The offense just sticks sometimes. But even even sometimes in that Suns game when I was watching him, he does some really nice things too. Like we always kind of knock him down a little bit, but he does do some really nice things that a lot of players on our team can't do. He gets to the he gets to the rim and puts pressure on the opponent's defense, uh, and he does a great job of getting to the free throw line. And I, I think he needs to continue to work at that. But, you know, that back injury has really hurt him. And I think Brogdon always being injured, uh, they're just not reliable. I think that's the biggest reason why they've been such a failure. I think that's a good point right there. Yeah, so, all right, Fachi. Well, we're going to end today's episode with that question. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Fachi, tell the people where they can find us out on social media. All right, so you can find us on Twitter, at SettingThePace3. You can find Alex on Twitter, at AlexGoldenNBA. I can be found on Twitter at underscore F-A-C-C-I. You can find us on Instagram at Pacers Talk. You can find us on Facebook at Setting the Pace. You can find us on TikTok at Setting the Pace. And if you're tired of hearing about 85 different ways the Pacers could trade Player X to this team, say these three words. Let's go Pacers! Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.